All right, folks, welcome back to the Roswell UFO Symposium. I am your host, Mike. We have co-host Shane, co-host Toby, and we have a special guest today, Keith Aram. Uh, Keith is the creative director at PCB Productions. Uh, he is also the director of the Roswell Incident, uh, as well as many other creative endeavors. Uh, and we'll look forward to uh, talking with him in a second. Uh, you can click on the link at the bottom, which has the link to his stuff. Uh, he is also on Twitter, at Keith Aram. And, uh, yeah, if you want to support us, all you have to do is go down below, click the link tree for the Roswell UFO Symposium, and uh, we've got tons of stuff on there from, you know, all of our social media stuff. You can leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, and we do do video episodes, and they're on Spotify. Also, if you're listening on an audio platform, please follow us on YouTube and subscribe, and if you are basically you know watching on youtube right now which some of you are uh please check us out on uh, all the audio platforms so but without further ado welcome on the show keith how are you really good thanks for having me director of the phoenix incident welcome, <laughs> how you guys doing good uh and, and if anybody's interested you can watch uh the roswell incident on tubi uh i, I just watched the phoenix it. incident the phoenix what did i say you keep saying roswell roswell i i apologize I, my brain's getting mixed i missed up um uh, Equally but, cool in. uh but yeah the phoenix incident i'm sorry um i did watch it on tubi uh it's it's kind of an interesting thing you took like a real incident and kind of used that as a platform or a springboard to come up with this cool story based off of that so uh, what was that the plan from the beginning or how did you get going with that project? Yeah, I, I've been working in video games and graphic novels for a number of years. And this was going to be sort of my entry, kind of my student project to kind of get into directing motion pictures. And uh, we had a pretty limited budget um, for doing the motion picture. So we wanted to do something that was sort of part documentary, part found footage, something that you know, could kind of uh, work within the budget range of what our, uh, um, you know, our, our finances could afford to do. So we kind of did it as like a, what we consider like a docu-thriller. And it was all research. It was all based on real events that took place um, back in the 90s. And we combined all the news footage and recovered footage, plus the stuff that we shot all into this sort of unique kind of mockumentary um, to put it together. And most of it is all actually based on real uh, facts and footage. Um, and then we fictionalized our story and our characters going through the middle of all these crazy events that were happening in 1997. Could you explain a little bit about the uh, crazy marketing campaign you guys did? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, one of the things that made the film kind of unique was that um, we had done so much research and, and so much development on the story that it wouldn't just fit into an hour and a half motion picture. So we actually shot about four hours of footage um, that was produced footage, probably hundreds of hours of footage we shot. Um, and then we created sort of like an ARG, like an alternate reality game scavenger hunt, where we created this sort of multimedia experience with uh, hidden websites, social media characters, live actors, and different sort of uh, interactive 
elements that's there. And we created the backstory for all of our characters in the movie and hit it all over the world, all over the internet, uh, in live events, things at Comic-Con and Roswell. We did a lot of different appearances. There's all these like uh, Easter eggs and uh, what we call like rabbit holes that would pull people into this alternate reality game. And it ended up generating about 20 million followers uh, for the production that was there. And uh, you would basically get the backstory and all the materials that would lead into the movie. So if you saw the film, um, you would be like, wait a second, I heard about this. And if you could Google anything, you would find the characters and find things online. So it would look like everything was real. So the characters had their own family histories. There were missing person sites. There was news reports. There was military articles. And we partnered up with about 20 or 30 different companies that helped us hide the footage and put things together. And um, so when we launched the movie, we launched at the International UFO Congress in Phoenix. Um, and then we did a national premiere with Fathom Events and AMC, Regal, and Cinemark Theaters. And we streamed that into about 200 cities. So as an independent film for a million dollar movie, um, it was kind of a kind of a special thing because most movies don't usually kind of launch that way. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I thought it was well put together. Like you said, it's kind of a interesting, you know, unique way of uh, making a film. Do you, what's your connection or thoughts on the actual um, Phoenix Lights or the Phoenix Incident? Well, what was wild was that that year in 97, um, all over the world, but especially in Arizona, there was just so many unique things that were happening. There had already been the Belgian wave that had happened in Europe, and there was all these other triangular craft sightings that were going on. Um, there was this unbelievable rise in unexplained cattle deaths, and there was this rise in disappearances in Arizona. And Arizona already has a pretty migrant kind of population outside of the cities, uh, but the number of missing persons really started to escalate right around that time. And the Hale-Bopp comet was also coming to its closest point to the United, to the to the Earth in 7,500 years. So there was a lot of things that were all kind of coalescing at the same time and coming together and converging. And the Heaven's Gate cult um, had previously been based in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, before they moved to Rancho Santa Fe, which is about uh, four or five hundred miles away in, near San Diego, and when they saw the Hale-Bopp comet uh, footage that was coming in, there was sort of a triangular or some kind of a shadow that was trailing behind the comet. And people didn't know what it was, if it was ice formations or something, but they believed it was a ship that was coming to sort of evacuate and take their, uh, their group um, to the next level of consciousness. And uh, so that week that all of this was coming together, this massive fleet of lights was seen from the Nevada border all the way down through Flagstaff and Prescott and all the way down to Phoenix, Arizona and crossed over parts of the city. And uh, there were reports that there were jets scrambled and all of this uh, eyewitness footage that took place and early video cameras that were there in the 90s. And uh, so this was one of the largest mass sightings that had taken place. And it was all happening around the same time in March of 97. So we kind of felt that that was the best backdrop to sort of weave our characters through and connect 
all of those different things between the Heaven's Gate cult and the Halebach Comet and the Phoenix Lights and what was happening around the state. Um, and so uh, it was it kind of wrote itself in a lot of ways, and it was pretty pretty cool. There was two other motion pictures that <laughs> came out right afterwards that actually kind of borrowed a lot of elements and some visual elements as well, which was kind of interesting. Um, but, uh, but we shot a documentary afterwards. We brought in Nick Pope and Lee Spiegel and Alejandro Rojas and Stanton Friedman when he was still alive. And, and we did a little documentary kind of talking about the fact and fiction of the movie, uh, even though the film was obviously uh, had a lot of fictional elements. Uh, they, we kind of talked about all those real elements that were incorporated. Can I uh, point out real quick to anyone that's listening? It's kind of similar to what Tom DeLonge's done with his books, reality with a story to kind of tell a really interesting story to kind of get a message out. Is that am I kind of describing it right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people, you know, they learn history through, you know, a narrative. They learn through stories and they, they you know, if you look at Titanic, you know, one of the top grossing motion pictures of all time, you know, all those characters were fictionalized, but they were based and inspired by real characters that were in that. And so you have a historical event um, that takes place and then you identify with those characters and, and the story that goes there. And it kind of humanizes history to some extent. And I think that because UFOs and UAPs and, and the kind of world of uh, that we live in, in terms of doing the research and finding things, a lot of people have a hard time relating to that. And so, um, and at that time, especially when we made the movie, a lot of the Pentagon footage and a lot of the other Tic Tac footage and other things hadn't been released yet. And we were seeing stuff privately, uh, but it wasn't really mainstream at that point. So a lot of the military footage, the FLIR photography, a lot of things that we had was really getting a lot of traction. And that's why our, our viral campaign, I think, took off so much because people, you know, really saw this as military footage that was being leaked out. So when all that Tic Tac footage and everything else did come out, people thought it was the next part of our movie or some part of the extension of the viral campaign. And the film had a huge uptick on on Apple and, and on Amazon. I also I want to piggyback on that, though, too. I think that's important, like using new media formats, such as like a, a mixed documentary type fantasy to tell this story or perhaps to beat Toby. Comic books. Uh, I know, for example, there's a... Uh, a very uh, talented guy. Our estimated situation. I don't know if it's comics. So I know you deal with comics too. So he's telling this story here. And I always talk about this in my spaces or, or on this podcast. That, like, you know, using new media formats and mixing them, doing what you need to do to bring people into the topic is super important to me as an experiencer. So I, I you know, I, I appreciate what you do. And I also know, can you talk a little bit about the, the comic portion? Of what you do yeah to me you know, comic books are such a phenomenal format for a creator or a writer or an artist to express themselves because you don't need a giant team of people to be able to convey your story and tell sort of a bigger uh, message and so i started about 15 20 years ago with my early books just started to write comics as graphic novels to be able to storyboard these ideas or these movies and uh, the first book I did was a book called Ascend, and that became uh, the top selling book for Image Comics and uh, is still actually, you know, has film offers and it's started my directing career and, and a lot of work in games. And, um, and so now I've got a new graphic novel that's in production right now with Wesley Snipes uh, and Adam Lawson called The Exiled. And uh, sort of the, the alien tie-in to that is going to be revealed 
in the in the second uh, episode that's going to be coming out. That book's just coming out next month. And it's great because working in graphic novels and comic books, you really get to explore these ideas and these characters. And like you said, it's like it's a great way for people who might not follow other things. They might not always get to see motion pictures or documentaries or listen to podcasts. It's just everyone finds their own you know, entertainment or stories that they relate to. And if they, they find that information coming in from a comic book or a graphic novel, it's a great way to introduce people to the topic. Also, real quick, before I finish, I'd like to shout out, man, the comic book thing impresses me more than anything. That kind of saved my life at a tough time, right? I'm such a nerd, and shout out all the nerds. I got encyclopedias going on, you know, and again, I spend a lot of time in it. It's, it's, it's a great way to get different messages out, so I appreciate that, man. I'm a super nerd, so I love it. Super nerd. Yeah, I think everyone responds to different things. You know, some people love just... A novel some people like the visual side of things some people want a linear experience like a movie or a tv show some people want an interactive side of things so you see some people get hooked in through games because they just like the tactile version of being able to interact with something and telling the story themselves uh even a graphic novel if you think about it is fairly interactive i mean the story doesn't progress unless you turn the page and you're reading it in sort of your own voice or how you're interpreting that story so it's interesting that uh that graphic novels and comic books have continued to inspire um so many different formats and so many different shows uh half the movies and tv shows are still influenced by graphic novels and comic books not just marvel and dc but other other stories as well and uh, it's such a great medium to work in that, uh, you know, people can get started that way and then evolve that into, uh, you know, these other formats. You have so a huge digital you, collection, image included. Can you uh, guide us a little bit through what you do in the video game world? So I started uh, in, uh, I was influenced by a lot of things. I was, uh, I was an artist. Uh, I was a writer. I was interested in movie special effects, um, but I had a big background in in music, and uh, so I originally started uh, with the band Biohazard and then Contagion on Capitol Records. And so when I came out to California, um, I was coming out here to go to school, and then I got signed with Capitol Records. And so I was touring and um, playing with Nine Inch Nails and Frontline Assembly, a lot of these early industrial bands, and I got sucked into uh, scoring motion pictures and movies and had scored about seven movies. But the whole time we're on tour, we're playing video games. We were playing Street Fighter on our tour buses and going around and doing things. And so I had a friend at uh, Sony and uh, he asked if I was interested in getting involved in the game industry. And I thought uh, I had heard about uh, that there were these guys getting paid to play video games. And I was like, sounds like a cool thing. He said, wait a second, you have a bachelor's degree in audio engineering and you're a recording artist on Capitol Records and you're scoring motion pictures and you want to be a game tester? I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And he goes, you need to be in production. And so uh, he introduced me to uh, a, a team up here in Los Angeles that uh, was working on um, Battletech, which was the first uh, Mech Warrior game on the early Sega systems and uh, did the score for that and it blew up. And then I ended up working on Earthworm Jim and a whole bunch of stuff. And I got hired by Virgin Interactive. And, uh, and then I ended up just getting pulled into the video game industry in the nineties. 
and uh, and then we were bought by Electronic Arts. I ran all the I was the audio director for Virgin and EA for about seven years. And then I started PCB Productions in 2000. And this is now 23 years and we're going strong and got our own movies now and our own books and our own video games. And um, so it's been just a wild ride and just kind of you don't know where you're going to go. I still wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up, but uh, but it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I like I mentioned off air too, love Call of Duty um, and a lot of the other stuff that you've been associated with. Um as far as like scoring, um, you know, we're about to, we're working on our first documentary right now. Do you have any advice for people looking to get into that creative side of things with like the audio aspects of it and everything like that? Like, did you, is it just because you're passionate about it? And then like when you start a project, you're just so into it that you come up with something or do you have an idea going in of what you want to do or like, what's that process like? I mean, as a composer, it's it's kind of an interesting difference from where I'm at now as a director, but having a musical background really influenced all the other aspects um, of, of my creative work that I do. I, I think for me as a composer, um, I would wake up with an idea at like three or four in the morning and want to sort of like explore that and be able to pull, pull that in. And I think that you need to kind of allow your creative environment to be able to do that, um, to be able to support, um, uh, you know, what you want to create and, um, you know, where you want to go as, as a job and be able to do that as a career, it's much different because you have work in front of you and hired as a composer to be able to, um, uh, score a motion picture or a TV show, you're now interfacing with other creatives that have their idea of where that's going to be. And so I think, you know, if it's your own work, it's, it's one thing because you're kind of following your own creative whims. But if you're actually brought in by another client, you're trying to understand and relate to them and pull that together. Thanks. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you mentioned, you know, you were into industrial kind of music and stuff like that. Um, do you think that that served you too? Because that seems like that would go hand in hand with actually a lot of the types of games that you've been associated with, um, that style of music. Like me personally, I'm into jam bands, improv, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I could see where industrial rock, industrial music, like you mentioned Nine Inch Nails and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, that, I think that kind of, like I said, goes hand in hand with those style of games. Yeah, I, it was interesting is that when I, started scoring for games the industrial music was like perfect for it and it kind of led into other forms of electronic music so i was doing ridge racer and stuff for tony hawk and a game called metal arms and a lot of games like that but then that also led into the this orchestral very heavy stuff that we did for um a lot of other games that was tied in with more of my cinematic stuff i would do i was doing for films um one of the things that was was really tragic for me and it kind of changed my career was that I was writing a lot of music. I was also creating samples and doing sound design because I was doing all the sound for like Tony Hawk and all those other games, creating all the skateboard sounds and ollies and everything else for all their their um, the sort of character sounds and in-game sounds. Did you work hand but, in hand with uh, Mick West? No, not not for the sound for the sound design. Uh, I'm just joking. No. Because he, he helped design knew, Tony Hawk. I knew you were going to say that, Mike. I knew it. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, in 
2008, 2009, um, we had a huge fire here at our studios and it just, and it broke out in our music vault where our music room was and all of our hard drives. And, uh, and it just wiped us out, lost like almost 50,000 samples and about a thousand of our multi-tracks and all of our equipment and burned, you know, all of that. And then the rest of the studios were smoke destroyed and we had to gut the place. And so even though I was still doing sound and music for all these big games for X-Men and Spider-Man and other, other titles, I was also directing all the celebrities and all the actors and the talent. And so that kind of pushed me more, even though we were rebuilding the studios, it just pushed me more onto the performance side of things. And uh, so I took a lot of that music training and as a director, I actually tend to direct more musically uh, my wife, who's also a director, she tends to direct a little bit more uh, emotionally. She'll talk about, you know, getting an, an actor with an emotional inspiration. And for me, I'll use that as well as, as sort of the, the context of a scene. But I'll also, when it comes to game um, performance, we'll also use a lot of musical training to be able to, in terms of, you know, speeding up a take or flattening out a read or teaching actors, especially in video games, how to use... Uh, sort of uh, their technical acting skills to be able to do that. And so a lot of that music training has helped us with facial capture and motion capture and doing a lot of stunts and timing and a lot of the performances that you hear in these games. Um, you need a lot of music training and really develop your ear. So now I've become much more of a performance director and directing, and that's why moving into motion pictures was kind of a natural progression. Um, than staying with music. And I'm in the middle of actually rebuilding our music rig after the past 10 years, we're rebuilding our music studios. And I'm last year I scored uh, Walking Dead and um, Mortal Kombat games. I did songs for those titles just as kind of the first time going to be my toe back into doing some game scores. Um, and uh, there's been a ton of interest in us going back out and, and tour and go back as, you know, pull the, the band back together, get the guys from Contagion back together and do a couple of US and North American and European tours. But I'm working so much now and directing that uh, I, I kind of want it, to, it's, <laughs> it's interesting because when your hobby becomes your career, it's kind of hard to choose because it's like you love what you do and it's not like, you know, you're doing it because of the money, you're doing it just because you love to do it. But there's just not enough hours in the day to, to do everything that you want to do. So it's a uh, it's a, a kind of a balance now between, you know, what I want to go back to and doing music and then directing where we're at right now with the new films. So back in 2016, actually the first year that we did my festival in Roswell. Yeah. Excuse me. Keith, Keith came out and we did a red carpet premiere of the Phoenix incident, not the Roswell incident, Mike. Dude, I had a brain <laughs> fart. It happens, bro. Sorry. Uh, anyways, it, it was super cool, but he told me the story that I, I'll never get over about a horse prop. Could you go ahead and tell everybody that, Keith? About the prop that we had on the film? On the trailer? The one on the trailer, you were stuck in traffic. Uh, the uh, the one where when we had to move it at the film premiere? Which, which story is when we shut down traffic? The horse. Yeah, well, we were when we first was so in the film, there's a scene where uh, and there's only pictures of it in the movie. There's actually an extended part for the viral campaign, but we built a full size eviscerated horse that was sort of uh, taken out, we presume by the aliens and uh, real horse skull. Um, and then the guys from um, it wasn't KNB. I'm trying to remember the name of the visual effects team that did it. 
the special effects team, but it, it was a full size horse. We've had it in storage for the past several years. And um, so when we, the film was full, first premiering at uh, that uh, the uh, AFM for the American film market, um, we did this like special premiere for all the buyers for all over the world. And um, we had sort of a museum set up with uh, stills and artifacts from the movie and other things just to make it really realistic before we did the screening. And we had to bring in this full-size horse to be able to do it. We had this whole plastic room that was all lit up. And so we had to load this truck with this giant horse and bring it in to uh, Santa Monica where this uh, film festival was. And these guys were uh, bringing it from the truck in and it completely shut down traffic because everyone thought we had this like crazy eviscerated horse that we're bringing in and everyone thought it was some kind of crime scene or whatever. And it just stopped traffic for about 20, 30 minutes while we got this thing in. And then people are looking in trying to figure out why we have a dead horse in this building. So we said it was a crime scene and we had lights on it and it was, it was quite the sight. Yeah. Sounds intense. Um, what's your, so do you, um, do you find the UFO UAP topic interesting from like a, on a creative level too? Like just as like kind of thought experiment stuff. Um, like how, how do you perceive the ufo uap topic i mean if you just think about like our universe and the the number of planets and solar systems and you know galaxies that are there the percentage of them that can contain and support life it, it's just staggering it's just it, it's it would be so naive for us to think that we're so special that we're the only planet in the entire universe that could support life. And uh, so I've always kind of felt that like, you know, even though we might be at a great distance and not be able to visu visually see other civilizations or have experienced them directly, um, it's impossible to think that we're alone. It just doesn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. Um, but I think that what's interesting is that there's been so much mythology and disinformation and other things that have been sort of combined in our society over thousands of years that have misinterpreted things, both from the UAP and UFO side, from the religious side, um, from the metaphysical side. There are so many different things that people have misconceived or construed or, or interpreted differently that, um, you know, even right now, things that happen in the news, we can't even always get a clear story of what's going on. So for things that could have happened, you know, sightings, you know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago in Roswell, or things that happened thousands of years ago in the Middle East, it's like, it's so open to interpretation that um, it, without that tangible smoking gun, without that footage, like what we're starting to see coming out of the Pentagon and other things that it's hard for the mass population to really believe it and embrace it. And so I think that that's why it's always been pushed aside as conspiracy theories or something that's been on more of the extreme fringes of things, because people who have seen things and have experienced things, they just want answers. And it's not that they're conspiracy theorists or they're trying to be disruptive. It's just, they're trying to get answers to what they've seen. And when I was making this movie, 
Um, and I grew up in Arizona seeing things in the sky all the time. And there's tons of military activity there. You've got Davis Mountain Air Force Base and Luke Air Force Base and a whole bunch of activity from Fort Huachuca and, and, and definitely doing experimental technologies and other things. So you're seeing things like crazy that you don't understand, but there's something much farther beyond that that is going on. And when there's so many people in the military who are seeing things and the civilians who are seeing it, um, it feels like you know, there's a bigger conspiracy to cover it up, to, to, to keep people from seeing that. And I think that drives people like myself to want to get more answers and use whatever mediums, kind of like we were talking about before, like graphic novels or other things, use whatever you can to get people talking about it because it, it doesn't make sense why uh, we would be so isolated and so cut off with the type of uh, military aircraft and and telescopes and and viewing power that we have to see there that there's got to be some evidence of something that can be shared and and if the governments or other people were scared that of mass hysteria or we give up on religion or whatever the reasons would be um, it doesn't make sense and so I feel that like as a filmmaker I have an opportunity to sort of allow people to explore these topics fictionally or non-fictionally um, to just get them talking about it, to try to drive change. And so one of the things that we really did was we started this, this campaign called Disclose Now. And that was really our sort of our secret uh, safe word that we were telling the UFO community that when we were doing this viral campaign for the film, that even though we were carrying all this fictional material, that we were you know, trying to let them discern that from what's real. We didn't want them to feel that we were just trying to punk the uh, you know, the audience with all this disinformation that was there. Um, we were trying to tell our narrative by inspiring them to find something that ended up going in and having people do research. And that was actually the real big positive change that the movie did. So it was 20 million people following this thing. They actually did look up the actual events and started doing a lot of research. And so when we were able to come out and publicly talk about what we were doing, I think that really served to help a lot of education and uh and uh dispelling a lot of the disinformation that was there and so you know we had john greenwald and reuben langdon and lynn katai and the guys from mufon and then obviously we had nick pope and lee spiegel and alejandro rojas and stanton all talking about it right and and talking about what we did and using this as a way to talk about you know the change that needs to be happening and you see people like Tom and other people starting to, you know, really get involved in, in, um, you know, getting this information out to the masses. And, uh, so it doesn't become some kind of weird, obscure conspiracy, you know, topic or conversation. It actually becomes mainstream. And, and I think you're starting to feel, feel that most people now, whether publicly or privately, they believe that we're not alone. Right. It's just, the question is how we've seen it, what we've experienced, that's subjective. And I think that there's a lot of mythology and other things from Hollywood and other things that have been mixed into it. So that's why everyone has a different interpretation of, you know, what that contact might look like. Um, but I, but I really feel that, you know, with everything that's happened, especially over the past five to 10 years, that people are really starting to change their outlook on, on UAPs and UFOs and really what that means for us. Yeah, you hit on something towards the end there that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, people getting their perception from media. How do we, um, 
keep the integrity of actual good research and philosophy and things that will push science, things that will push this subject forward. Because it seems like, obviously, no offense, but bullshit sells, you know, and you see a lot of that out there now, people selling crap, whether it be online or whatever, you know, like crazy stuff that's not based in what we know uh, of reality. Like, how do we maintain that credibility? Because it does seem like people do want to gravitate towards the more fantastical elements of these topics. But I feel like people that are making content do have a duty to do their due diligence and make sure it's like quality and, and like I said, steeped in actual metaphysics and reality and things like that. Well, I think the, the, the big problem is, is that if you think about everything from star Wars to star Trek, I mean, everything deals with aliens and extraterrestrial life. I mean, it's, it's, it's not unique to any aspect of our culture in any way, shape or form. You know, people interpret angels as extraterrestrial. There's so many different interpretations with that, whatever kind of mythology you believe in. So there is no right or wrong uh, in terms of how you view it. The problem is, is discerning the research and what's actually happening in terms of the science of what's happening versus how we interpret what that is. If it's coming from, you know, uh, a physical space, uh, a dimensional space, there's so many different ways to interpret that. And, and at this point, the science, we don't have a definitive uh, unified acceptance of what's happening. And as a result of that, um, the only thing you can do is sort of inspire and educate, right? Because as a scientist, if you don't have the proof that you need and you don't have the validation through the community, then it's not going to be accepted. As a filmmaker, or as a creative person, it's easier to do something, you know, to scare people with aliens or to inspire them with a science fiction story or tell them to get them to believe and sway them to be open and thinking uh, about the possibility as opposed to just rejecting it and not being able to support that that vision until that smoking gun is produced. And so I think that what's interesting, there's a lot of great people who are doing a lot of great research. And there's so many people who have been contributing and really being part of that. And you're, you're seeing that in the UFO and the UAP community. Um, but I think that uh, it's you know, everyone has to contribute in their own way. And even the filmmakers, you know, Ridley Scott, when he did Alien, you know, that was one of the most terrifying visions of an extraterrestrial alien I think there ever was for me growing up as a kid that scared, you know, the pants off of me. And very realistic, that movie still holds up right now. And, um, you know, and why not, right? Because it, it inspired me to get involved and, and be able to research and do other things. And so I think that it's, more important that you have people who have an open mind and a discussion and and constantly are looking to grow and seek the truth than there is people arguing that their version of the truth is better than the other person's vision because that's what we've seen with religion over the past several thousand years and you know uh we've had entire civilizations wiped out because one person's philosophy is different than the other and even if they're based on the same but it's a different vision of that and so i think that you know, it's it's important that as we're all starting to realize that we aren't alone and there are things going on, that we have an open mind to it and how that 
you know, is perceived and they don't have to be angry, you know, disgusting, vicious aliens that are attack dogs that are killing guys in the desert. And it doesn't have to be peaceful, you know, angels that are coming down and, and, you know, whispering secrets into people's ears. I mean, there's so many different interpretations of, of what this could be. I like to think think of them as uh, Mac from Mac and me, if possible. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Or Alf. Yeah. Alf eating cats out there. Um, Right. But I I guess my my point was actually, and it's a weird dichotomy because I do think that sci-fi is an amazing tool to think about what we could do uh, for discovery and science in the future. However, I do think like things like ancient aliens and while it's entertaining and we get to see these cool megalithic structures and stuff like that, it's clear that, I mean, humans built all that stuff. There's not aliens coming down (laughs) doing that, uh, in my opinion, but I think it's an educated opinion based on, uh, Toby's hands off, but, um, and it's no knock on that. I mean, like I said, I think that, like I said, it's things like that though. I think it, like I said, it's a weird dichotomy. Science fiction, awesome, propels us. Uh, but if we're talking about reality right now and like what we know and don't know, I think that that's what kind of what I was talking about more of like the documentary style or TV show style stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's, there, there's a lot of amazing stuff that's out there and the footage that's there and a lot of the filmmakers that have been building you know, uh, amazing stories and research on that, I think is super powerful. And there's a bigger platform for it now. I think more and more people are consuming that and, and open to watching documentaries. It's not as fringe as it was even 10 years ago. Have you seen James Fox's Moment of Contact? I haven't. I know about it and I know a lot of people who are involved, but uh, I've heard it's phenomenal. Okay. I was just curious because I know he said there's allegedly a 30 second clip of video of the actual being that they're working on getting released. I mean, what, what do you think people's reaction to that would be other than it's CGI? He told me that in person at the Congress, actually. I think, you know, when I was sitting with uh, Micah Hanks and uh, Chrissy Newton, he sat down beside us and before he tweeted all that, yeah, he told me that. I mean, if that can be validated, that's a game changer, right? But I think you'll always have people that won't believe no matter what, you know, they could have a complete chain of custody and someone's still going to say, oh, that's, that's the government or it's CGI, it's a puppet, you know, it's, we have so much distrust in our society right now on all sides of everything from politics to religion to this. So it, you know, it's going to be hard for us to have a lot of progress right now with what everything that's going on in the world, because, you know, where everyone is so far apart on so many different things that uh, it makes it, it makes it a challenge to really make progress when everyone's kind of uh, sort of undermining you know, you, you come up with something and you and the government comes out with it and then we're like, well, we don't trust the government. It's like, well, if you don't trust the government, then who can you trust? Right. And uh, and, and rightfully so. The government has you know, been involved in a lot of cover ups and other things. And, you know, a lot of stuff that happened in the Phoenix Lights and the military cover ups that went on. That's that was really the, the basis of what our movie was, was. And it wasn't just that, you know, it's a, after our film was really uh, interesting, too, because one of the pilots from the A-10, uh, from um, davis Monthan Air Force Base, um, uh, just within weeks of the Phoenix Lights, he actually broke out of formation and flew his jet uh, all the way to the Colorado border and slammed his jet into the side of a mountain with four intact bombs. And the military couldn't recover his plane for about two weeks. 
and uh, had no idea, you know, and he was potentially one of the pilots that may have been involved in the Phoenix Lights and the flare drop. And then within a month or two, his training officer, the only female pilot in the A-10 fleet, she also died in a mysterious training accident. And there was all sort of this controversy that they may have been involved in what happened in the cover-up that was going on with the Phoenix Lights uh, out in the... Uh, you know, in the mountains there, in the Australian mountains. So, you know, it's, we always have this inherent tr distrust of the people who are around us, you know, in government and other things, because they're not sharing all the information that's there. And so it puts a lot of the onus on us as filmmakers or as documentarians or as researchers or scientists to kind of go out and get that information out there and then get that accepted so people can actually get the real truth. Very interesting. Is the A ten? Is that the Warthog? Yeah, that's the Warthogs. Yeah, they're learned, based out of. Dave. I learned that from Call of Duty. All right. Um, <laughs> Shane um, refueled them. I'm sure. <laughs> I have. I have many times. Those are loud, right? I mean, in the game, they're There's, loud. Actually, I'll tell you a story. So, one of the my favorite things about an A ten when you're in uh, when I was in the Middle East. Uh, if you're an enemy, you were scared shitless when you heard him coming because you heard him coming. If you were friendly, you were so happy because you heard him coming because you can hear him. When that, when, yeah. when that, oh man, just, I mean, they're coming, they're coming low, people scatter because they're, they will tear some stuff up. So, yeah. Yeah, they fly low and slow. I mean, they're tank killers and, uh, and the guns that they have in the nose of those things are so powerful that they can only fire in small bursts because those things will actually rip the nose right out of the, the warthog. They're so powerful. Um, but, uh, but they're like flying in like a lead, uh, like tank, you know, or, or a bathtub, right? It's just like this whole thing that's just kind of coming in low and slow and they can take direct hits from a tank on the battlefield. So, um, yeah, the, guns, uh, one, the gun's so powerful that when it fires in those bursts, it actually is doing the opposite of the propulsion in the back and it's decreasing because it's hitting like that as well as I know for a fact that there's been one warthog that was uh, wing was completely destroyed and gone and it flew home and landed safely without a wing. That's Those crazy. are badass. Yeah. And I can attest they are badass. I worked many people over on Nuketown on Black Ops. <laughs> <laughs> I Thank guess they're a couple. They're, they're cool. <laughs> They're old. I know they're, they're going to be replacing them soon with something, probably. Probably a UFO. I got one. Super it's wrecked, cool. but I've got it. <laughs> so, Keith, when are you going to come back to Roswell? We gotta, we gotta plan that. That's our, that's the next thing, right? We gotta go to do the next festival and. Uh... We're going to be re-releasing the movie. Um, we're got, we've got about, I think, eight or ten festivals that are going to be showing the film this year. And uh, we have a new cut of the film. Um, we may be doing like an extended cut or some of the extra footage that's there. Um, and uh, I really wanted to cut down some of the shaky footage that was in the, the movie. As a first-time filmmaker, you're like, oh, sure, we're going to run out in the desert with a red camera. And it's like, oh, my God. So, uh, so it's nice. We're going to be kind of, uh, doing a little bit of an edit on the film to be able to make some of that stuff a little bit less vomit inducing. 
And, uh, but it was great. It was great. I, for my first film, just to kind of learn how to make a movie, we shot the thing in 11 days and, you know, just over a million bucks. So, uh, but it really opened up my chance to be able to direct other motion pictures. So now we're in the middle of getting ready for doing three new motion pictures and obviously the new games that we're doing. So for me, it was a great experience just to kind of go through that process of, of making the film and, and be able to do that. And so going out to Roswell and be able to do the, the, the festival there and be able to show that with the audiences and interact with people who, you know, uh, I think on one side were moviegoers, the other side were people that, you know, were experiencers or people who, you know, really were researchers and other people wanted to do it. It was, it was a great experience. It was great, great to be right in the middle of all of that and, do you, and not be. Do you remember when you were standing in the theater and that elderly couple walked out because your movie was too scary? Yeah, we got, we got quite a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> some people don't like the profanity and other things that were there. And uh, most of the actors in that movie, uh, it was interesting as a lot of the character work uh, was really based on the actors that uh, I had been uh, working with on all those video games. So Troy Baker is, you know, the main character from the last of us. You got Liam O'Brien and Travis Willingham from uh, critical role. And their show right now is huge. Um, and you have Yuri Lowenthal, who's Spider-Man and the new Spider-Man games. So a really amazing cast um, that's there. Even Matt Mercer, who's from Critical Role, and his career is huge. He's the, some of the pilot voices there because we had done all this stuff on Call of Duty together. And uh, Brian Bloom, who's also on the Call of Duty team over at Infinity Ward. Um, just great, great actors and great people to work with. So uh, as a filmmaker, getting to work with all this amazing talent, and getting to play in this space on a topic that I wanted to explore was just you know, a great first time experience. Can I tell you that The Last of Us is probably one of my favorite games of all time. I do like to play single players, but uh, I will say that that's probably the only game when it finished and it was over. I was super sad that I had finished the game and I wouldn't be able to experience that whole thing. You know, for the first yeah. time, the only time yeah. I've ever felt that where I was like, oh, man, this was amazing. And so, yeah, that was an amazing game. I remember the time because it was so good. I remember exactly when it happened. It, it's imprinted right in my head because it, that feeling was like, I'll never experience that again. Yeah. The fact that narratives and video games have gotten so good and so emotionally powerful like that, that it's like it's surpassed motion pictures right uh the 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 game industry is bigger than film and television and music combined and the fact that you know you're not just watching a half hour tv show or an hour and a half movie but you're actually experiencing something that goes on for 20 30 40 hours of gameplay um that's pretty cool and to have performances and something that really engages you to the point that you really just love being in that world that really speaks to the fact that our society has really changed a lot. You know, it's not just going to see a movie now on the weekend. It's, you know, video games are a part of our lives. I'll say that uh, I just realized too, that's the last game I played before I got really sick. And uh, whole story anyway, doesn't matter. And so much so, I loved it so much so that I don't watch TV shows, movies. I read a lot, but HBO's doing that series and that's, I keep watching the trailer and that's all I think about was like, oh, I hope this is, this does what the, you know, does it some justice because after playing the game, yeah, those narratives are, um, I mean, if, if they're done right, I'm telling you, it feels like you're right there and you're sad and you're just like, what happened? 
you know, you shouldn't, you know, it's just like a song, you know, when they get that, uh, one of those songs that pulls with those heartstrings, that game did that to me. And I'd never felt that in a game before. And it, what's kind of interesting now is that most of the actors who were in Phoenix Incident weren't really known at the time, right? They had been working in games and doing a lot of stuff, but they weren't really named talent. And Last of Us came out after the film and all these other film, these games kind of broke after the movie. And so now that you see these guys on Critical Role and you see Last of Us and other things, like now these actors are pretty uh, mainstream actors and they're they're very well known and, and respected. Uh, so a lot of people are rediscovering Phoenix Incident and surprised to see all these actors together in the movie and finding their favorite video game actors. How come we don't, uh, can we get, you know, some sort of multiplayer alien game, some sort of, I feel like there's not that many cool alien games out there, right? There's, there's a few, there's a few out there. Uh, even, even Call of Duty actually had some DLCs for, I think it was for Ghosts or Modern Warfare 3. There was like some. Yeah, there was one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The zombies have had some stuff too. Right, right. So yeah, we do, we do need <laughs> right. No, but I, I would like to see some sort of uh, multiplayer game like that. Um, I saw you worked yeah. on Tit Titanfall too. Actually, I thought that was a bad when that first came out for uh, one. Uh, I really yeah. enjoyed that game a lot. Yeah, that was the original team from Modern Warfare Two, and then they left and started Respawn. Mm. Sweet. Yeah, I'm loving the new game too. Good stuff. Um. So you said you're working on uh, something now with uh, Wesley. Yeah, got a new book called uh, The Exiled. And uh, myself, uh, Wesley Snipes, and Adam Lawson. And uh, Skivo is doing the, uh, the artwork on it. And uh, really cool story. Um, we did a Kickstarter earlier in the year, and it just blew up and exploded, did really, really well. Um, we ended up teaming up with the guys from Whatnot, and Whatnot is going to be publishing the graphic novel under their new uh, Whatnot Publishing umbrella, and uh, that's pretty exciting. If you guys haven't seen Whatnot, that's kind of a game changer, I think, in the industry for what's going on with collectibles and comic books and other things. And so uh, that book, uh, both the Kickstarter and the first uh, issue are coming out in January. I think pre-sales are... Uh, I think pre-sales wrap up in about a week or so, and it's probably one of the biggest pre-sales they've ever seen uh, on previews and and uh, what's going on with comics right now. So we're ex super excited to have this book come out because the reveal is is awesome. Just in the initial preview, uh, it's about this sort of like this hard-boiled detective that's sort of on the chase of the serial killer, but the killer is sort of um, gruesomely uh, uh, um, taking on his... Uh, his victims uh, by removing their spines. And uh, it seems like some kind of horror seven kind of murder uh, scary thing. But the way he's doing it is he's using these tools from uh, some kind of ancient artifact that's over 5,000 years old. And so there's some really weird tie in with this. And uh, so uh, issue two is going to be the big reveal of who this, this killer is and what he's doing. Um, but a lot of fans who know what we've done, you know, with Phoenix and other things, I think will be pleasantly surprised because it's kind of a, a nice nod to, to what's actually happening. 
And uh, the, the whole pitch of what we did for this story is going to about to come out in issue two. So um, yeah, so it's called The Exiled and uh, it'll start off as a, as a comic book uh, graphic novel. And then hopefully we'll get to make that into a motion picture and a series as well. Should bring Wesley on with you next time. Yeah, he's yeah, great. Huge Wesley, fan of his amazing. too. I had, uh, I had started to work with him back when I first started in the game industry on Demolition Man. That was one of the first games I did at Virgin. And uh, and then Wes had actually seen one of my other graphic novels, Infects, and had reached out and reconnected. And we became friends and started working on some projects together. And then when we decided to do this, we were like, you know what? Why don't we why don't we team up and put this together? And it's just been it's been awesome. And he's just a great, great partner in all this stuff. Oh, you look scared, Mike. No, I had my mute button on by accident. Um, nice one, Mike. <laughs> uh, no, I'm looking forward to all these projects. I'm not a big comic book guy, but I know uh, Shane and Toby are. Um, I, I respect it. Comic book guy. I, I always tell the story when I was younger, my cousin and I, we would go to the card shop and I would get you know, hockey cards and baseball cards and collect cards, and he would get all the comic book stuff and kind of did it that way so i was more of a card nerd <laughs> yeah i think that a lot of people had seen comic books predominantly as superhero stories and while that's obviously a great uh platform for that um i think that comics and, and graphic novels have really had the opportunity to evolve over the past 15 20 years into so many other types of stories which has been great and as a visual medium, sometimes as, a, as an author, it's a really just great way to express an idea. You know, you try to explain it in a novel and it's like, it's cool, but you just don't have the, the ability to do it without the visuals. So comics have really kind of bridged that gap for a lot of us to be able to do that. Yeah, be sure you check out Estimate of the Situation, Keith. It's a, a project going on now and it's actually based on, you know, like UFO cover up and stuff. It's It's pretty phenomenal. I think you'd like it. That's the That's comic awesome. book I was showing you earlier. Estimate. He he does a whole UFO. Th you know, just telling the, the story of different experiencers or different. Uh, I guess you would say events, incidents, and he's put it in comic comic book form, just like you. You know, with the Phoenix incident, kind of put telling a story in a way that brings people in, so they can kind of see. You know, it's it's pretty damn damn cool. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that's such a great just a great way to get people to start talking about it. Just the same thing like we did with our film and, and, you know, with these other platforms, you know, having something that people can just find their own way and, and interact with it is a great way to get excited about learning about it. So like, you know, what's the goal with like the exile stuff? Is it just to, to keep it, you know, as a comic book or kind of like a walking dead thing where you maybe like produce it or, you know, turn it into some sort of TV production or a short series or something like that. I mean, the, the story itself lends itself perfectly to do either a movie or a TV show. And with Wes and his background, you know, I think he very much would love to see it as a motion picture uh, as well. Um, it could easily make a television show. And there's been a lot of great television recently over the past five, 10 years, TV has really gotten very, very, very good. Um, so I think we're open to both and we're getting a lot of calls right now, just based on the success of the Kickstarter and now what people are seeing on the pre-sales of the book. Um, 
that uh, a lot of the studios are paying attention to that. So I think our goal is is very much so to to get to see this realized as a movie or a TV show. So that's probably our our next big thing once the the book comes out. And there's six six episodes, I think. I think six chapters that'll be coming out. So over the next half year. Or so once that kind of makes its its kind of arc, then I think you'll see a lot of movement for us on the movie side. Very cool. Look forward to that for sure. Um, I actually, I kept Walking Dead lost me towards the end, but early on, I, I really loved The Walking Dead, like the first like three or four seasons. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's I think if you can take something that's already an art, you know, or a graphic novel or comic book or whatever, and do it justice, I think that those come out really well. But I mean, there's not, you know. There's not that many adaptations that, you know, that people always get pissed off at adaptations. But I think if you're doing both, if you're either connected to the comic book already or into that world, I think you probably respect it and understand it a little bit more than, let's say, you know, somebody that's just trying to produce a show or a movie or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's you have to have that that creative sort of um sort of continuity between the creators who are working on both mediums. So they understand, you know, obviously each medium requires people who are experienced in making that medium work, but they also have to understand what makes it work in another one. And so um, seeing that with Walking Dead and other things, you know, it started off obviously as a very successful series and then be able to turn it into a television series and seeing that growth of the series from where Frank Darabont started it and where it's gone now um, with Kirkland is, is, a you know, it's important that you have that continuity. Absolutely. Well, anything, uh, else, Toby or Shane, any other questions before we wrap it up here? No, I just want to thank Keith for coming on. Um, and like I said, hopefully we get you back in Roswell. I'd love to do it again. It was a, it was a great time. Great. We actually had in the office one of the alien eggs that hatched. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was kind of funny, but yeah, Keith is fantastic. His wife, his kids, every, they're all just so nice. Some of the nicest people you could ever meet. And um, happy for all the success you're having. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. We're just you know big kids having fun. You know, it's like I, I think that uh, so many people think that you have to do something in life and you have there's there's you know i don't know there's an expectation that you've got to do things and i think at a young age i just said you know like i just want to just be happy and do things that i'm inspired to do and just try to find a career to focus on doing those things and i think that's that's really the secret to it is people want to work with people who are excited to do what they do you know you don't want to go to a doctor who's just like oh okay i'll just treat you with whatever's going on. Like you want somebody who's going to be like, Hey, we're going to find out what's going on with you. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. And, you know, and that's, and that's really what you want. And so when you're creatively working with someone, you want someone who's doing it because they're inspired to do it and they're excited about it. They're not just doing it because of the money or whatever. You know, if, if you're in this business for the money, there's, there's a lot of <laughs> other careers that you can pursue to make better money than, than, than that. But uh, but for people who really like creating and doing stuff, it's just a it's a it's a great space to be. I mean, that's wise words right there, and I agree. I think anything you can put your passion into definitely, um, you know, gets recognized for that. And 
you know, it's very tough to be original and creative. And I talk about this a lot on my podcast, but to, to have an original idea or mostly original idea, I mean, everything's influenced from something, right. But to, to get to that point where you're constantly coming up with like new ideas, it's people recognize that. And I think that we need more of that in this world as opposed to, you know, making a recreation of a recreation or, you know, going back, what was popular in the eighties? Let's remake that movie or let's, you know, like come up with a new movie. Like I, you know, I would love to see more new stuff out there. So I appreciate what you're doing and bringing that creative element to it because I cannot stand keep watching stuff that I watched when I was a kid and just shittier remakes of them. So, uh, but I, I I really appreciate it. And I, I love all the stuff you've done and I loved the Phoenix incident, not the Roswell incident. I apologize. Hey, you for can my... love the Roswell incident too. I I, Roswell... I apologize for my brain fart, everybody. But uh, yeah, so everybody, please go check out the Phoenix incident. It's on Tubi. You can watch it. It's a it's a free downloading stream platform that you can go download right now and watch the, the movie. Um, and yeah, do you have anything else you want to plug, Keith? Uh, no, I mean, we've got a lot of surprises coming out this year. Um, you can always. Follow us at uh, pcbproductions.com uh, or pcb.cc. Uh, and that kind of has a lot of our projects that we're working on, especially our game projects that's there. Uh, but yeah, we a lot of surprises. We've got a lot of, lot of neat games coming up. I think we've got about 30 new games that we're producing and directing this year. So you're going to see some fun stuff coming out that we're working on. And uh, hopefully Exiled and uh, and our next movie projects will get announced soon. And then uh, we'll have more to talk about. Awesome, man. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, this is a treat. You know, we can talk UFOs and shop all day long. But I think that you offer real insight into how these movies, documentaries, you know, the music, video games, all that kind of stuff gets made. And um, I think that's important, too, to people see how the... uh, you know, the foods made, if you will, or I don't even know how you would use that analogy. Uh, but um, no, but uh, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, so everybody check out his website. I have the link down below. Again, please check out the Phoenix incident on Tubi. And uh, if you want to support uh, the Roswell UFO Symposium, all you have to do is click the link tree link, tree link down below. Uh, we've got all of our social media stuff on there. Uh, if you're listening, please check out our YouTube channel and subscribe. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel, please check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And uh, that's it. We'll have to have you back on in the future, Keith, and we really appreciate your time. That would be great. Thanks, guys. It was really nice to talk to you guys today, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit. Thank right. you for coming, Keith. And real Keith, quick, thanks. guys, I just right. want to shout out to Wounded Warrior guys. Check them out. If you're watching, you know, save my life as usual. And I would also like to say, if you guys aren't on Twitter, you need to get on there. You're missing out on part of the conversation and some spaces we're going to be holding and are holding. So if you get a chance, hold that symposium, my name on there. You got Mike Escape, and then you have RD Incident. So check it out. We're going to be holding spaces and doing this as well. So thank you. All right, everybody. Stay safe out there. We love you. We will catch you next time. Peace. Stay soon. Take care.